Have you ever wondered how the separate threads of your life fit in to one big picture? How the individual moments of challenge and triumph connect to one another to form the great meaning of your life? I am Anna Mullins, your Life Story Editor, and I'm convinced that making sense of our deepest pain can help us understand our deepest purpose. In my speaker training program and on this podcast, I help people weave together those confusing, often shameful pieces of their past, revealing the life-changing lessons that create their profound new story. Welcome to Unapologetic Stories, where secrets are out and the truth is in. Welcome back, storytellers. If you have reached maximum burnout, pandemic burnout, mom burnout, work burnout, any burnout or stress at all, right now, this is the episode for you. I am chatting today with Justine Sonas. You know what? I didn't even ask you how to pronounce your last name. Let's do that right now as I introduce you. Justine Sones. Stones. There we go. It's Good thing. So funny. The number of times people said, Justine, how do you say it? And I'm like, Sones. Everyone always wants to say Sones. Sones. <laughs> I just, I made it two syllables instead of one. So I am it's chatting very today. fancy for me. <laughs> very fancy. I'm chatting with Justine Sones. Justine Sones, a writer and stress management coach who loves drinking coffee. I am also drinking coffee as we speak. She also loves helping burnt out humans set boundaries and talking about things that hurt. Now, this is my kind of woman right here. Justine spends her time writing about feelings and coaching other over-functioning humans, my hand is up, develop healthy boundaries and practice sustainable self-care as they navigate the messy intersections of partnering, parenting, preneuring, and pandemicking. Justine Soames, welcome, 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 welcome to Unapologetic Stories. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you today. I am thrilled to have you here. I've been digging into your background a little bit. It's what I do. I kind of do some research on my guests before they come on. And I want to just start right here. You are an entrepreneur. You are also a mother. You are also living in a global pandemic as we all are. How in the heck are you doing right now? How is life for Justine? It is a lot of taking it day by day and really, really, really practicing my presence and getting grounded just constantly. Yeah. Um, because on the grand scope of things, when I look at the last year and a half, it has been a lot of ups and downs, most of those being kind of down. Um, and I feel grateful that I am in the place that I am today, viewing it with some sense of perspective and acknowledging the growth and healing along the way. Um, but I think that some of those roles really uh, brought some specifically exquisite stresses navigating yes. the uncertainty of the last little while. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you know what? I love that you actually said ups and downs, but more downs, because this is something that I loved when I was kind of reading your background here is that you really don't shy away from the painful things. And something we mm -hmm. talk about often on this podcast and in a lot of the work that I do is how our own personal discomfort leads to our innovation and how our pain leads us to our purpose. And I recognize this truth in your bio and your journey as well that, <clears throat> excuse me, you started out as a massage therapist. That was your mm -hmm. job. Um, but it was ultimately an experience with postpartum depression that moved you into the work you are doing today as a stress management and boundaries coach. So talk to me about that experience and maybe a little bit of your backstory. Tell us, walk us through kind of like how you became the coach you are today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that we'll start the story with what got me into massage therapy, um, which my first taste of anything massage related was as a little kid giving like my mom and my aunts like foot massages and scalp massages and just like, I loved seeing how good it made them feel. 
So my entry point into this line of work was recognizing how good it felt to help people feel good. Um, so that's what got me into massage therapy, which I think was, a um, well, I know was really my introduction into the self-care and wellness industry. Um, but what I was stepping into was kind of a, a predetermined paradigm of healthcare and wellness. Um, and over the course of my career and the more that I worked with real humans, I started to understand how uh, messy and nuanced this conversation was and, and how the ways that we were approaching taking care of ourselves had some real flaws. Um, and that learning is what postpartum really revealed for me because I started leaning down the, or how do I want to say this? I definitely had a really tough time with my mental and emotional health in postpartum mm. um, for a variety of reasons. And this started to really expose those cracks in the self-care setup where I was doing the things that I was quote unquote supposed to do to take care of myself. And it quote, like wasn't working. Right. Oh, interesting. So what, talk to us about what those things were. So when you say you were doing the self-care setup and those things were working for a while until this postpartum set in, what were those things? So before I had kids, it was things like I got a lot of rest. Like it was no joke that I would not go to parties when it was late. Like I would leave early. I fall asleep when people are on the couch. Like I was incredibly protective of my sleep, knowing that that was really important for me to show up on the other side of it. Um, I also had, you know, physical activity built into my day. I biked to and from work. I had jobs that created social interaction. You know, as a massage therapist, I was always talking to other people. Um, I had a sense of purpose in my work. I was able to eat at regular intervals. There was a sense of, even though there were, you know, stressors in life, my time was still my own. I wasn't, I didn't have to, um, I didn't have the responsibility to someone else that competed with my responsibility to myself. And uh -huh. so I was able to build support and recovery into my day. Once kids came into the picture, the role of being a parent really shifts that responsibility that you experience and therefore the way that you show up. So. Um, I started to lose that access to the tools that I had used to stay healthy between the sleep, not eating regularly, not being able to get outside, not seeing people, um, all of those things. And so that with my first child, I started to realize, oh, these things aren't happening. And my husband and I kind of restructured the way that we were living our life to create more space for those things. So it kind of righted the ship a little bit. But then by the time that the second kid came into the picture, it increased the um, uh, the strain on me more than double. You know, you think two kids twice as much work, but it was much more than that. And then all of a sudden, despite my best efforts to go for walks, prioritize sleep, eat food, I kept kind of going down this decline. Like a lot of people talk about um, having like feeling like they were blind to their descent and all of a sudden hit a breakdown right. but i was in i was in constant conversation with therapists doctors like i i came from healthcare i knew this was happening and despite everything that i knew i was powerless to stop it and i still had a breakdown mm. you know this is so interesting so like there's so much layered into this justine as i'm listening i'm thinking most moms out there are having this experience where they were able to be the center of their world, at least to some degree, whether or not they had a self-care setup or they were just putting themselves first because by virtue of having no codependence, you can do that and you just do it naturally. You wander around your life, filling your own needs first. And then we introduce children, of course, we've all been there. There's no sleep. Anybody who's had a baby or even a baby puppy, it's like, you don't sleep. Mm -hmm. at all. So you lose that rest, you lose that plugged in self-care without even thinking about it. But then also you have this experience where your brain is functionally changing as well. You are entering yes. an actual postpartum chemical depression at yes. the same time. So this is while we all kind of lose the self-care things, postpartum depression is a unique diagnosis common, mm -hmm. but also unique. So talk to me about what it was like. And I talk about this a lot in my own personal journey of having to face the fact that something else is going on this descent. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh man, there's a word for this. Talk to me about that recognition for yourself. About the recognition of the descent and realizing that things weren't 
Yeah. And just naming it and saying, this is postpartum depression. This is not just, um, I didn't eat today or I didn't have time for sleep because the baby kept me up, but that this is something that's Mm -hmm. actually happening inside your physiology. Yeah. So, so again, one of the, one of the biggest clues for this, and this is what my doctor had to call out for me. Um, because again, it's this funny thing, even with all of my experience in self-care, healthcare, wellness, we still have our own blind spots. And so my doctor was the one that had to say, look, under normal physiological circumstances, the efforts that you're making will give you traction. There's something else going on that's preventing you from basically absorbing the efforts that you're putting forth. And so that's when we first started to name it as being um, as being um, definitely depression. And I have to do a little aside here because when we talk about postpartum depression specifically, like, yes, there's a there's a chemical imbalance that results from the interaction between the nervous system, the endocrine system, etc. And I think part of why it becomes such a specific uh, juncture has to do so much with those um, external stresses that come in terms of our, our expectations of ourselves and some of that inner dialogue um, and that mental and emotional piece. And so it is such a huge influencer that creates an environment that exacerbates um, maybe missing hormone or neurotransmitter levels, right? So again, I think it's really important that we talk about both of those things. And that's part of what this diagnosis ultimately led me to. Mm, So so interesting. Yeah. So getting the diagnosis of postpartum depression and anxiety, it allowed me to call out that the impact of my wellness or lack thereof was actually starting to have a negative consequence on the people around me. So one of the clinical diagnoses of specifically postpartum depression is actually rage. And it's something that doesn't get talked about a lot among moms, but that was a really red flag, a uh, big red flag for us in my diagnosis. Yeah. Um, another thing that people often don't realize with depression is that you kind of lose your capacity to, again, absorb the results of like joy, rest and pleasure, which is part of why all of my efforts weren't actually landing. I was doing things that I would normally be happy doing and not getting those results. Right. So these are the kinds of things that, again, are kind of like those red flags or triggers from being like, I'm having a hard time with my mental health to I'm experiencing mental illness. Right. Okay. This is big. This is really big. I mean, I talk about this constantly, but I love the way you just articulated this as well. Because even as I'm hearing it, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. It's resonating so much for me. And I actually didn't experience postpartum depression. I experienced post-traumatic depression. And then something you and I, I'm just going to go here. I wasn't sure if I would or not during the actual recording, but you and I, before we hit record, had a little back and forth. And we were talking a little bit about brain fog and about being able to kind of reach for words and being able to like get your brain to work the way you want as you're even going through something like a podcast recording. Mm-hmm. And we kind of name that, I name that as depression. My experience with depression has been that my brain is like reaching for words and I'm going, I know what I want to say. I can visualize what I want to say, but for some reason I have absolutely no capacity right now to even grab the word out of the air and stick it in my mouth and put it on my tongue and form a sentence, which is mm-hmm. bonkers for somebody who has a degree in English and mm-hmm. does storytelling for a living. It's been one of the major kind of pinnacle um, stressors for me, I would say, as far as my experience with depression, but we also talked about, now I had posted yesterday on my stories for reference for anyone listening It's September 15th. So this is going to be a while now until you hear this episode, but we were talking about a post that went up that Brene Brown posted about something that they have now named pandemic flux syndrome. And in the post it named pandemic flux syndrome as something we're all experiencing, which has these markers of increased sadness, anxiety, and an urge to change something about your life. And literally I said to you before we hit record, how interesting that is called depression. That's actually what I've been living through now for a decade. Mm-hmm. And those are the markers. And as you're saying them, I thought, you know what, it might be interesting to introduce this right now, uh, not necessarily to introduce labels and diagnostic it's, um, names for anything mm-hmm. anybody is experiencing, but these are things that many of us have lived through for a very long time. And then you add the pandemic and then you add the increased stressor 
if anyone is feeling the urge to change something about their life right now, it probably would make sense, I would think. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because, again, we want to move away from the things that make us uncomfortable, which is a survival mechanism. But it's really important that we're able to understand what the thing is that was making us uncomfortable and what we need to move towards to meet the need in a more healthy and sustainable way. Yes. You know, so the, again, the, the, the official diagnosis that I got was extreme depression that was exacerbated by the postpartum period. And so that's it. Things may change as, as my life circumstances change. Um, and again, I think we're in pandemic flux, you know, syndrome, we're living through a, 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 the results of a prolonged period of deteriorated mental and emotional health. Right. And so it's just all these cracks are, like you said, like exacerbated. Yes. And so you've said that. And again, the way that some of, um, you know, you mentioned the brain fog, the way that we, as a result, end up struggling to connect the dots between our brain, our mouth and actually speaking it like a that impacts the ability to actually name and meet our needs, which means that we struggle more to take care of ourselves. And another, um, you know, symptom of mental illness in certain capacities is loss of executive function. So when you think about something like it's easy for somebody who isn't struggling with their mental health to say, well, why don't you just eat? But it's like, okay, for me to actually go through the steps to think about what I'm going to eat, make the list, plan how it's all going to come together, go to the grocery store. Like there's so many steps that become insurmountable when you are in such a depleted state. Yes, 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 yes. And just so much yes here. One thing I wanted to add as well, it because this is such a great example, it's like just a meal we think of when we say executive functioning, we're talking about like multi levels of thought that have to come together. And this all happens in kind of like the front of the brain, but having to actually put together one thought, layer that on the infrastructure or scaffolding of, an, of another thought and scaffold that on another thought. And then adding to, I'm just validating this for anybody listening, the simplest tasks, tasks sometimes, such as making a phone call, as you say, mm-hmm. asking for the help that you need, being able to articulate the help, or even picking up the phone and making a call. So not only is there a scaffolding happening where there's this multi-layered executive skill thinking mm-hmm. that has to happen in order to get there, the actual fear of what the result is of that phone call, the uncertainty of what's on the other end and having to forward think what the results might be when you can't control the outcome of what the person on the other end of the phone might say. So this is all layered into these diagnoses, but even without a diagnosis, we're talking about things like self-care. We're talking about things like mental health, protecting your mental health boundaries. And a big, big, big one that you talk about a lot, I know is how hard it is to actually ask for help. So hard Mm -hmm. enough when you are dealing with depression, but even if you're not, talk to me about how hard it is to just ask for help at all. And especially maybe for moms, when it comes to your children, Mm -hmm. how can we make this easier for people, maybe moms and women's moms and women, especially. Yeah, it's so interesting because, um, you know, you just mentioned the what I often refer to as the story that we tell ourselves in response to things. So whether it's making a phone call and then feeling the anxiety and fear and the way that your brain will paint a scenario that let's call it what it is, it's pretend it hasn't happened. But because our body can't tell the difference between a real and a perceived threat, it reacts the same way regardless, unless we're able to pause examine that story, challenge it, decide whether or not it's true and make a conscious choice, Mm -hmm. which as I say that out loud, sounds like a very simple thing. But again, let's remember when we are in a stressed or heightened um, state of vigilance, that takes up a lot of our bandwidth and capacity. And it is actually a lot of work to deconstruct that thought process and unpack it. Okay. So that's one thing to keep in mind when we talk about why it's so hard for Um, moms in particular to ask for help. And I think a lot of it has to do with those kind of subconscious narratives or expectations that I referred to earlier, where it's like, for me, the experience of becoming a mom, I had this intellectual idea of what it was going to be like in the same way that I thought I knew I'd be able to take care of myself. And the reality of that was so different. I had no idea that I, despite 
thinking in my head that self-care is not selfish. Like you don't have to be the only one taking care of your child. Like all of these things, when push came to shove, my embodied response still reacted from a place of, if you're not able to do this, you're not a good mom. You're not a good person. Right. Right. So even though there's a lot of complexity to the story my brain is creating that gets me there, the way that my body responds to it either way is from like a shame or fear-based place, which creates a negative spiral. Yes. Yes. And it makes you even more afraid to continue and take the next step. Yes. And, and again, this shows up in not just, you know, getting help with child care, but it's like, what's the quote unquote quality of the food that you're preparing for your kids? Like you want to talk about executive function being compromised and then also trying to put together a bento box that's all organic and all of the stuff that otherwise is apparently going to poison our kids. Like these are the expectations and things that we're wrestling with. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah. So here's where like my, my brain heart gut just wants to go on behalf of all of the moms out there that just had a big deep sigh when you said all of this. What do we do about this? What do we do about it? How do we kind of break through and begin to A, ask for help, but also maybe I'm going to introduce this word because I know you speak on this a lot is boundaries. How do we create Mm -hmm. these boundaries in order to protect our own mental health? Yeah. So for me, a big part of it has been the practice of, of, um, like naming, owning and challenging those subconscious narratives because otherwise I don't actually know what I'm dealing with. Yeah. And so when I'm able to name them and, and some of those for me have looked like, um, again, centering around a lot around, um, this fear of being selfish or of, of not putting my kids first and, you know, what that means about me as a woman, as a partner, as a parent, as what have you. Um, so for me to name the expectations that I'm subconsciously holding, and then at the same time, examine the truth of how do I actually want to show up Mm. right because we talk about like self-care has to be prioritizing yourself and the truth of the matter is that if i don't work past these like bullshit reasons that are keeping me from seeking help and actually get it then the net result isn't that i i show up as this like maternal nurturing madonna the result is that i'm turning up or i'm showing up as a resentful shell who's reactive and again causing harm to my kids. So unless I'm willing to name the lie, essentially challenge it and then recalibrate to be like the choices I'm making are aligned with the way I want to show up, which is yes, with tenderness and compassion and presence with my kids. But I can't do that if I'm at a 10 out of 10 on a stress scale. So it's, it's not, it's not simple, even remotely to go from, I know I need help how do I ask for it? Um, but the way that you get there, I think, is, again, that ability to name, unpack, and consciously choose the story that you're participating in. Yeah. Like, what are you making this mean? That's so interesting. And and I think this is a, this is something that's so common for women, and particularly in my generation. I feel like I can say that now that I'm nearing 40. We can use that term, <laughs> my generation. Yes. Um, we really did most of us kind of function on the idea that motherhood should equal martyrdom Mm -hmm. in some way that self-sacrifice equals being a good mom, self-sacrifice equals being a good friend, being a good spouse and having to carry around that lie, as you say, Mm -hmm. carry around the lie that motherhood should be self-sacrificing should be kind of like an all in deal. Like, here we Mm -hmm. go. That's it. Just sell yourself out. And now the rest of your life is functionally for your spouse or your children or your family or your community or your PAC advisory council or what have you. Mm -hmm. That is, that's a big weight to carry. And it sounds like it's something that you are carrying as well, that how do we move through having to step back into the truth as opposed to the lie? How do we show up? in kind of solidarity with ourselves and say, it's time for me now. How do we even do that the first time without feeling just that insane amount of guilt? 
I think that part of part of it is um so one of the things that we have to be aware of is the way that this like playing small subservient self-sacrifice narrative perpetuates silence right because okay, tell me more how about that. how convenient is it if our shame stories keep us from talking about how hard this is which means that everybody feels alone in their suffering mm. and how do you create collective change when you're all drowning individually right okay so, so you're saying talk more about how hard it is i think it's important that we're able to talk about and normalize how hard it is not to to stay in this like motherhood sucks narrative but because you know we talked touched on earlier about the importance of being able to sit with pain discomfort and things that hurt yeah. right and this is going to come back to our body's ability to distinguish between real and perceived threat in terms of the stories that we tell ourselves if we come up against a feeling of discomfort often lead to, like I said, shame or fear, which means yeah. I'm a bad person as a result of that. Nobody wants to be a bad person. So when we hone our capacity to sit with those feelings of discomfort and learn the lessons that the painful experiences have to offer, then we can bring them to light, normalize and find a community around those things. Yeah. Yeah. You're speaking my language here, Justine. I love this so much. I mean, just destigmatizing any topic that traditionally has been clouded in shame or mm -hmm. given us any feeling that we will not be accepted if we will not be appreciated or acknowledged or for goodness sakes, if you're an entrepreneur hired, mm -hmm. if you have to talk about these things, if you admit how actually hard it is to juggle and balance and compromise as, for example, in our situation, self-employed working moms. But this really transcends that conversation. This is really about holding your personal boundaries first and foremost, but yes. also then speaking up. And I think I'm trying to figure out, and maybe you can answer this for me, is, is there an intersection here in the conversation about boundaries and also in sharing about yes. your truth, dismantling these lies, but also kind of holding yourself in some kind of sense of honor around your yes. boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I think it's, well, I know that it's Brene Brown who says that boundaries um, or vulnerability and disclosure aren't the same thing. Mm -hmm. And boundaries are what create the distinction between those. Um, so if we're looking at sharing our stories from a place of wanting to heal and create change um you share from the scar not the wound i think it was nadia Boltz, Boltz weber who said that and so for me what that looks like is by the time that i'm sharing something publicly it means i've done the internal work to name process own and heal that story so that I'm not sharing it from a place of reactivity, right? It's like looking for this is the shared truth that I think other people can benefit from and apply to their own lives, again, regardless of their circumstance. Because as much as the entry point for my work is often with moms, women, business owners, because of the unique circumstances of stress that creates, the skills and patterns that we learn um, and, and practice are universal, right? So it, it's wherever you go, there you are, you show up as your person with your personal boundaries and the way that those boundaries help you take care of yourself influence how you show up in all of your different roles. So again, on a note of how those boundaries come into play is that feelings are where your boundaries begin. And so again, if you're not willing to sit with your feelings and learn what they're telling you, it's gonna be really hard to make conscious and informed choices that allow you to take care of yourself going forward. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. I was like making a mental note. I'm like, oh, this would be a great time for an audiogram moment. <laughs> good. So good. And what's interesting here too, is that your own kind of wounds, which have at least to some degree become the scar, moved you out of your professional career as a massage therapist. You entered motherhood. You went through this kind of trials and tribulations to be cliche. And mm -hmm you actually moved that into a purposeful mission of becoming this boundaries coach, this stress management coach for other people. And you now offer these practices, obviously in your practice, but mm -hmm. something that I read recently, you had a beautiful article out. I can't remember exactly where I read it on the baby spot. I think it was. Oh, and you yeah. talked about the four 
R's, the four R's, which are retreat, recovery, reserve, and revolution. Can you talk to us about that? Because this feels like big learning that you went through personally with your own journey and now Mm -hmm. being able to kind of package this into some practices that we can all take away. So talk to me about your four R's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the four R's originally started as three R's and they came to be because as I was developing this language around this, you know, self-care boundary setting, stress management, um, you know, people were kind of asking like, well, I I talk a lot about the fill your own cup so that you can give to others. And people are like, well, how do I know whether or not I can give? Like, how do I know if what I'm feeling is normal mental health struggles because we live in a pandemic? And how do I know it's time to make an appointment with my doctor to talk about something else, right? So this is where the the first three R's materialized. So I defined retreat as being um, when we see our fight, flight, instinct engaged. There's also fawn and freeze, but we're going to start with fight or flight. Um, and, and again, kind of reframing retreat from being this like bougie spa experience to being the animalistic tendency to protect yourself, right? To like save your life. And that's kind of where survival mode comes into play. So we end up in retreat when we haven't been able to take care of ourselves and end up, you know, on that zero to 10 stress scale. We're at a nine or 10 out of 10. We're reactive. We're causing harm to others. Like we have to take care of ourselves. So ideally we exist in the place of the recovery which is the second r which is accepting that again life is going to come with challenges it's going to throw punches you're going to get knocked down but you should be able to get back up so that's where those self-care practices that allow you to say oh i'm feeling this way here's the need here's how i meet it and now i can go back in to do the work comes into play right so I really do believe that while self-care work starts with us, it doesn't end with us. You know, we don't want to be selfish and we do this work in part because we like being in healthy relationship with other humans and we want to give. I truly do believe that. Um, So that's where that third R is, is reserves. And that's when you've been able to take care of yourself and have the capacity to give. So, So really we're ideally running between that like recovery and reserves place. So that's where this framework started for me so that people could kind of assess where their needs were, what capacity they had to help in different areas of life. But I felt like the conversation was really falling short and that's where the revolution piece came in. And revolution started to take shape when I was naming the way that those external systems do impact the way that we show up. Cause you know, we're, we're working on our little life raft here, but the reality is we are in a sea and the sea has a different experience all around. So the goal of taking care of yourself in that personal capacity in my world is so that you can engage in that long-term challenging, difficult work of changing the systems that are exploitative and oppressive and are ultimately contributing to a loss of our wellness on, on a structural big picture level. But the truth is that you you can't continuously engage in a place of being full on, right, without burnout. So again, we have those three R's so that we know how to take care of ourselves and are able to show up without causing harm so that we can do that big picture work that's ultimately going to move the needle for everybody. Okay. Huge, huge, huge takeaway here. So And I think I want to kind of dissect this a little bit if Mm -hmm. you are willing to go there with me, but the world is really a sad place right now. I can actually recall a moment in university. I don't want to date myself, but my first degree (laughs) many, many years ago, and I had a professor, we were going through at that time, the big kind of talking point in society was uh, gay marriage believe mm-hmm. it or not. We were having conversations. That. I'm really dating myself now, but we we're still having these conversations, which is frightening to me. But mm-hmm. if we go back in time to that moment, I can actually recall there were several social issues that had kind of risen to the forefront of conversation. The big one was gay marriage at the time. And witnessing, I remember witnessing a professor who was moving through the process of trying to get married to her partner and was struggling with that, as well as teaching a women and gender studies course to a whole bunch of us who were just sitting there wide-eyed waiting. Mm -hmm. And I can actually recall her saying, um, I've reached the point of burnout. 
I have been trying and I've been pushing and I've been pushing this dialogue and I have been fighting for my own rights and my own revolution using your word here. It's now kind of rising to the surface in society. We're all talking about it. We've got all of these young whippersnappers in university asking questions about it. There was massive burnout happening. Now this is happening again, it always happens and has always happened, but we've got a light kind of shining on it currently. So it's worth bringing back to the table about the impact of revolutions and burnout. And then also, I think where I hopefully trying to go with this in the worst way possible is you have these levels of like retreat, recovery, reserve, and then revolution. Is there a point at which revolution is not possible? Is there a point at which we have to step back from these issues? How do we talk about them, engage with them, be aware of them, help with societal issues if we're in our own retreat, for example, if we're in our own recovery, if we're going through something mm-hmm. really Bernie outy? Yeah. So one thing I should probably um, also share in the evolution of the four R's is that I used to have them mapped out in a linear fashion where it went one, two, three, four, but it ended up perpetuating again, a degree of guilt where it's like, if I'm honoring my needs in retreat, but the revolution is still happening, like, how do you reconcile that? There's always work to be done, right? Right. I'm so glad you And so, yeah. yeah. And so this is part of where, and I will own that a, a large degree of this area of my work has been largely influenced by black women who are activists in the realm of radical self-care. Um, and so, the way that I ended up changing the structure was that revolution is actually the underlying R that the other three are built on. Because if what we are trying to do is dismantle a system that demands the cost of your humanity to be like the the entry point to keep it going, if that's the cost of it, then for you to step back from those systems, opt out of them and tend to your needs, that in itself is an act of revolution. If you're being told on all sides, your greatest value is your ability to participate in the system and you're stepping back from it in spite of all the pressure to remain standing in it, like that is an act of revolution. And so every step in this journey, because the goal of it is ultimately dismantling these exploitative systems, every intentional step and participation is an act of revolution. But you cannot do that work if you aren't taking care of yourself. Yes. So both, both things are true. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the relationship between them. Yeah. And then if we plug that in actually, even to the conversation we were having before about motherhood and stepping into motherhood and sort of losing your identity and kind of picking up on these past behaviors and patterns and lies and stories that are living that you might not even have known were hiding there until you step into motherhood. And then you're like, wow, did not know I was going to be carrying that shit around. Like, that's so weird that that came up for me. Again, this is a conversation, a dialogue in a system that even though we're working toward a revolution of mothers as self-sacrificing martyrs, which I think is changing. I think I have a lot of hope for the younger generations that we are changing this in a big way, Mm -hmm. but actually being in that space and actually stepping back as a mom, honoring your boundaries, honoring your self-care, putting these habits into practice, the ones that you're teaching us today is, as you say, a revolution in and of mm-hmm. itself. Yeah. And again, when we when we look at the impact that we have in the work that we do, um, and this is again kind of a nod to that having that big picture revolution gaze versus the more uh focused, honed in um inner revolution gaze, I suppose, is that we can spend all of our energy trying to rail at people who um or like yell at people who who are far removed from us who are maybe older than us who who were trying to change their minds and win them over because these issues do matter and if we're doing that at the cost of especially as parents teaching our children how to be critical citizens and 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 model the types of behavior we want to see in adults if we can get our kids modeling that empathy and love among their own friends, like that's really where we're going to see the change of the generation. And so, yeah, parenting just really brings into question a lot of the ways that we show up and the whole do as I do, not as I say. Yeah. Conflict. Um, but, but yeah, we, we're taught that 
we will convince people on social media. If we do all of this effort, we'll, we'll have the impact we want when the reality is that the closer that we get to our home, the more impactful we actually are. And so the more that, again, we can resist these external voices and pressures that are distracting us from the real work that's in front of us, like that's what the boundaries help us do. Yes. Oh goodness. I love this so much. Um, I know because we've, this is a little bit off topic, but probably not for the listeners because we've kind of mentioned the word boundaries a lot. We've said the word boundaries. We've said the word boundaries. I know, and this is very, very personal for me in the pandemic, the pandemic for me personally, I'll only speak to my experience here has absolutely and utterly drained my capacity on Mm -hmm every level. So whether we're talking about work, whether we're talking about uh, family, friendships, health, mental health, whatever, capacity has just been minimized to such a great degree. So I can literally, I'm visualizing like pinching it in between my fingers. I've got very little capacity left. So the choices that I'm now making, the boundaries I've had to put in place with family, with friends, with communities, with Um, I just announced recently that I wasn't coming back to doing the unapologetically her show again, because I just don't physically and mentally, emotionally have the capacity for it. It's a huge undertaking. And in a pandemic with all the added stressors of having a live event and trying to make that work with all of the, Oh my goodness. Yes. God knows what, if we'll even be able to, to have live events, I had to just finally say, this has to go. I have to, Mm -hmm. if I don't take something off my plate, I'm going to slide off the plate. Like I'm already sliding. I'm doing that descent. We talked about something has to go and something that has come up a lot in conversation with my friends um, and colleagues during the pandemic is the loss of actual friendships, actual Mm -hmm. boundaries in place with other human beings, boundaries we've had to put in place with other people in our life that we would never have imagined we would have to do before Mm -hmm. because we had the capacity to take on themes and issues and conversations and dialogues and emotions and other, maybe other people's problems, even in a way we couldn't, or we can't anymore. So let's just go boundaries, interrelational boundaries mm-hmm. between people, interpersonal boundaries. What mm-hmm. have you noticed either personally or professionally about having to set personal boundaries with other actual human beings. I find it an incredibly controversial topic in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard because again, the degree of urgency that we feel and the element of responsibility that we actually have don't always line up. Right. Right. So when I am um, helping to illustrate these relational boundaries. And we're going to come back to the the uh, cup of self-care analogy. So what I like people to do is to um, visualize a circle or a cup that is your cup of self. And this is made up of your values, your identity, your feelings, your thoughts, who you are as a person that other people aren't a part of, right? They, they end up influencing, but ideally they aren't a part of that. This is you that, you de- that decides this. So We're going to start with that cup of self and that's where your self-care begins what we're going to do next is draw a circle around that cup of self and then another circle around that cup and around and around so you basically have a target okay in the circle that is the closest to yourself you're going to add the most important relationships in your life who you are the most responsible for so for me that looks like my partner and my kids and especially my kids Because in any other relationship, you consciously choose to be a part of it. Our kids had no choice being brought into the planet. We brought them here. They are our responsibility. Full stop the end. So yes. So that inner circle with my partner and my children is what matters most. Next is going to be some of my, you know, my friends, my family, maybe coworkers. The, the, The lines start to get blurrier as you go out, but, but there's overlapping relationships and roles in each of these circles. Now, what we want to do is take that cup of self and pretend that we're pulling it up. So now we have a stack of cups. Okay. Okay. And the the closer somebody is to the top of that stack of cups, the more important it is that you show up for them as a whole human. Right. But again, the urgency or pressure that we feel to participate in these relationships isn't always relative to that actual importance. Okay. 
Does that make sense? I think so. I think so. So talk to me about, and what I just want to grab the visual and make sure that this really relates. Cause I, I almost feel like I want to close my eyes as you're saying this. Yes. So I've got a cup and I'm imagining like my actual coffee cup as I'm sipping out of it right now. And it's sitting on the table in front of me and it is filled with values, things that are important things that are meaningful to me and are needed in my life for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And I'm almost imagining like Maslow's hierarchy, but then add values into here as well. So things that we actually need and then things that will actualize us or that we feel are meaningful and valuable in our life. And then we draw on my table around me a circle with, of course, my children first. I agree with you full stop. They are ours. They are ours. They are ours. We have to do right by them. Spouse, of course, immediate family, immediate friendships, and then colleagues, et cetera, et cetera, as you say, the lines blur. So the one part for my visualization that I didn't quite grasp is when you pull the cup up. Mm-hmm. So talk to me, d- describe that one more time for me, because I think it's really key to figuring out how close we get to that, mm-hmm. the top there. Yeah. So when we pull up that stack of cups, it ends up functioning kind of like a fountain, right? Where you're pulling your efforts of self-care into the top so that they will spill out and then naturally ripple out into the layers below. Oh, so is this like chocolate fondue? Yeah. Let's do a chocolate fondue okay, self-care let's cup. Do, let's do like I'm a here fountain. for this. Okay. okay I love I the direction this went. I'm here for the visualization. <laughs> so, okay. So chocolate fondue dripping. So at the top, of our chocolate fountain, Mm -hmm. where the the top is, that would be things like what? So the way that I fill my self-care cup is with things like having quality time alone, getting good sleep, all of that stuff. So the way that I actually, and and like having space to protest, process my thoughts, process my feelings so that when I react to anything external, it's from that place of security and wholeness, not reactivity or defensiveness. So again, the actual practices might look like, um, quote unquote, abandoning my family in the living room some night so that I can read a book in bed or, or going for a drive and singing in my car by myself for 45 minutes. These, these actual practices look very different depending on every single human. And it's your responsibility to know what fills your cup, right? So again, the way that the way that our efforts actually work in a healthy way is starting from self and pouring down out the Uh, interrelational. Okay. Yeah. And so within, I mentioned having like all these, you know, people in your different uh, tiers. And so you can imagine that there's a little circle around each of those people that represents the relationship and the role and the responsibilities that you have. Right. Okay. So those boundaries end up actually existing with every single person. Okay. So they're like tiers almost. Like, again, if we go back to our chocolate fondue, it's like our top tier, which has the most, that's where the chocolate source is. That's where it's coming from. And where you have the most impact. Yes. Where you have the most impact, which is you, your self-prioritization, the things that keep you from melting down literally. Yes. And then the next ring, if the chocolate is pouring over the edge or in your example, a cup, the next ring would be the next most important people. And then Mm -hmm. down from there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so now what we're going to start coming up against is that conversation around urgency and responsibility, because if I'm hanging out on social media and I leave an errant comment and somebody, people start responding to it, this creates an immediate sense of urgency for me, right? Because of the subconscious expectations I have around social life, connection, belonging, acceptance. But these are all kind of like existential stresses. Urgency tells me I need to respond to that. If I'm responding to that and giving my energy to it at the cost of my kid who's having a really hard time with a big feeling because he's transitioning to a new school this year, is that a values aligned choice? Yes or no? Beautiful. Right? And so that's where having the capacity in that top cup allows you to do those values aligned checks to say, is this actually the best effort? Is it going to have the positive ripple out effect that I really want it to? Yes or no. And then again, knowing that these little interrelational boundaries, they will ebb and flow depending on your current state of life and how you're interacting with someone. So my kids are always going to be core because they are me. They are part of me. And there's a whole other conversation there to be had about the inverted boundary relationship with parent child. So we'll put a pin in that. Yeah, we'll cut. They, we'll, they, we'll aren't, they aren't me. Yeah, I'm like that. That came out wrong because they aren't me. There's healthy separation. We want it. Blah blah blah. But 
Yes. So the point of this, it's like, again, my first responsibility is to create the so safe emotional space and nurture them, not strangers on the internet. Yes. Right. But that said, even someone as close as my partner, if our relationship is having an unhealthy consequence that is impacting my ability to parent my children well, even that is not a guaranteed relationship. Yeah. Right. So, so, and that's just one example of that trickles down all the way down this, this wonderful fondue fountain that we have going on. Yes. Um, and, and, and again, so just to come back to the original conversation about the bandwidth that it takes to be able to unpack all of those relational dynamics and prioritize is so overwhelming, which is why we have to start with us. Yeah. Got to start at the top. This is so great, Justine. And I mean, I introduced chocolate, which is not surprising for anyone who knows me. That was, but I, <laughs> I'm loving the, like, I'm like the melting down, the burning. There's so much potential in this metaphor and I love it. <laughs> it's so much. We need to make like an infographic for this episode, I think with like a chocolate fondue. fondue yeah. Fondue. Yeah. Oh, and to that note, if you have like a pandemic or postpartum wrecking ball, that's hitting your top thing, no matter how yeah. much you pour in, you're not going to be able to fill it and pour over, which is part of where the assessment between, is this a normal reaction? reactionary response yeah. or is this problematic becomes an ongoing piece of the conversation. 100%. And and quite literally, like in my own, I'm going to take this back to my own personal experience here. I actually just ran out of chocolate. There was nothing else to melt. So yes. even if the cup at the top was full and the second cup was running enough and melting in enough that you could like get a strawberry in there and get a couple mm -hmm. of drips off it, those bottom third or fourth or fifth tiers, they were just getting the scraps. There was nothing dripping anymore because there was nothing actually going in to yes. the top of that chocolate fountain. There was nothing even to burn or melt, no matter yes. what. It was yes. just the lack of all of the things. And I'm kind of circling back here to the beginning of our conversation, the top end, when we talked about all of those self-care practices that we had, or that you had prior to having children, prior to going through the postpartum depression, you had things like sleep. That's a chocolate cube that could go in the top and begin to melt. Yep. And drip out. You have, um, eating on a regular schedule or nutritious food. We'll whole other podcast on access to such, but. Oh, seriously. And I, again, right? privilege cannot be discounted in this conversation. Ever. Like I cannot yeah. stress, cannot have the conversation without acknowledging that. No. And, and I love the, and the way actually, that it perpetuates these issues. Yeah. I love that. We actually just kind of spun this right to the conversation about equity, which is like some people just don't have the chocolate at all. We don't get yes. given the chocolate period. We don't have time, money, access, resources, or privilege mm -hmm. to even have access to those things. And in some way we've had this like global reckoning, which is we're kind of taking the chocolate away a lot from mm -hmm. a lot of people. And I know that that's been true for me, that sleep has been few and far between a good mm -hmm. night's rest, getting out to like exercise, even with gyms closed and community clubs closed things to even just get what you used to do. So whether or not this is entering motherhood and having all those things removed or entering a pandemic and having those things removed or having a conversation about equity and having those things removed without your mm -hmm. consent or control. This is such a powerful and important conversation, I think, about recognizing A, our own capacity, B, our boundaries, C, where our access points are at all. But mm -hmm. also, I think I'm feeling like this deep sense of kind of compassion for ourselves here as well, that we yes. can plug into any of these layers, which is, let's just take a deep breath and acknowledge that things hurt sometimes. And- mm -hmm pandemics are one of those things. And using some of these tools that you have just so graciously shared with us today, I feel so genuinely privileged to have had your wisdom and advice here. And I know, absolutely know that if I'm taking this much from your advice, I know that the listeners out there are just absolutely mm -hmm. soaking this in. Justine, I'm going to, to close this out here, kind of pivot to what I call my secrets are out segment. And Great. last season I was doing secrets are out and they were my secrets this season. I'm like, well, I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh gosh. So, so these are just my, I've been having so much fun with, with my guests with these this season. Um, just kind of rapid fire questions, just shoot from the hip. Let me know what's oh. going on behind the scenes. So my first one is, and I love this one. Do you have a theme song? 
I have a theme artist. Oh, go. Who's that? Which is Taylor Swift because yes. she has a song for every single feeling. Yes. And I, I can hear my husband groaning in the background, even with my sound canceling headphones on. So I have to point that out. Um, <laughs> He's heard one too many Taylor Swift songs in his life. Yeah, that's that's one way of putting it. Um, as far as my actual theme song in this moment, um, we're going through an election in Canada right now, and I have a lot of frustration with the political process. So it's a combination of Mad Woman and Only the Young. Okay. Okay. Yes. I, Those are my so theme songs there. right now. Oh yes. There's a lot to unpack. I love it. Okay. Talk to me about any guilty pleasure that you have. I've really been ridding guilty pleasure from my lexicon. Um, because again, we talked about that like little piece of like judgment and and shame, whatever. Like guilt as an emotion tells you that you did something wrong, right? So it is an important thing to do a value check when it comes to pleasure. Like there's very few of the activities that give me pleasure that I feel guilty about. Um, but what would be my favorite? I mean, I guess maybe uh, sunbathing, like laying out in the sun and reclining and whatever, only because I feel a little bit bad of the risk of skin cancer. Yeah, I can. And yet uh, we need that vitamin D, I think, for our. Exactly. Our, I mean, where exactly where your sunscreen. Folks. So, the also, the also, pleasure I'll, I'll put it this way. The pleasure that gives me a values check is when I lay in bake in the sun and I end up coming on the side of it being worth it. So the pleasure that's going to be my my new rapid fire question. Tell me the pleasure that gives you a values check. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. And then tell me kind of last and final here, what I want to know is give me your go-to retreat. I'm going to use your word here, but if you need to retreat, if you're going through something personally and you need to instant retreat, what's your go-to method my, of self-care? My instant one is going for a drive in the car by myself. Interesting. Yeah. And, and again, that's because when I get those moments of retreat, it's often because I'm at kind of an emotional peak where like, I'm so flooded, I'm overwhelmed, I'm struggling to sort through things. And then my mental thoughts start to spiral, it gets really murky. And so when I get in the car, and I put on a Taylor Swift CD, um, a song will come on that I know the words to I can sing along, I can crank the volume. So it gives me a chance to have that embodied expression that I need to move the feeling through. It also gives me something to control my breathing so that my panic doesn't get out of hand. And when I'm singing a song that I have memorized, it pulls my brain off of those subconscious negative thoughts into a different track. And Love so that. if if I'm looking for a way that like I need an instant reset, it would be that. And then the backup is going for a walk. Um, right. Okay. Same, so, same idea. Same idea. Like either listening to a podcast or music so that I can move the feeling through my body, get my brain into a healthier space yeah. and do something that will regulate my breathing. I love this. So perfect day for Justine is getting in the car, driving along, listening to Taylor Swift with yes. the window down because there's sun coming in and we're sunbathing yes. a little bit. Yes. And then at some point we park and get out and we get a walk in let me ask you this before we close out. Where can my listeners find you online? Where can they get in touch with you if they need help with any and all of this? Yeah. So the best place to stay connected with and learn more about my work is by signing up for my email newsletter called The Friday Feels. So you can sign up at bit.ly slash The Friday Feels. And it is a bi-weekly, occasionally weekly um, email all about practicing self-care, setting boundaries, and feeling your feelings. Um, in a less predictable manner, because my boundaries and self-care are in a constant flex and flow, I'm on social media, Instagram and Twitter, both at Justine Sones, one word. Um, so yes, I'm there sometimes and sometimes I'm not, but I'm consistently sending out emails because I love long form conversation. Um, and I think that really gives me the opportunity to do that. And then beyond that, I run a group coaching program called Staying Alive, um, which you can learn more about at my website, justinesones.com slash stayin' alive. 
Perfect. That was such a good, that was such a good plug. You are great at that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm oh, a little God. bit sweaty on the other side of it, but no, you're doing great. This is amazing. Justine, thank you so much for joining us today. I know this has been a very powerful edit for me. Um, I'm so grateful for you and thank you for being a part of unapologetic stories. Yes. Thank you for holding the space for the conversation. I appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you for joining this edit of the Unapologetic Stories podcast. If you're ready to share your truth and rewrite your personal life story, connect with me at unapologeticstories.com for all the details on speaker training, storytelling, and strategizing your way through this one big life. If you've enjoyed listening, we would love for you to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast listening app or Apple Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Unapologetic Anna for new speaker training start dates. Until next time, stay brave, stay unapologetic, and keep bringing in your truth.